the tool of tools, the instrument of instruments is consciousness. This is what facilitates everything that we are and everything that we think, say, do, consciousness. It's interesting that whereas, you know, any serious professional will, will really work on developing his skills, most people rarely put any time to developing the skill of thought, the skill of pure consciousness itself and directing and focusing our minds. And so meditation is the discipline of consciousness. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. As we enter the period of the Amim Noraim followed by Sukkot, we're embarking on what might be the most intense spiritual season of the Jewish calendar. Some people find the davening on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur deeply meaningful, and others find it interminably long and drawn out. How to overcome the boredom that some people experience in shul is a topic I've dealt with before and which needs to be addressed again. But one way that does help some people, both in shul and out, is the discipline of Jewish meditation. In order to learn more about Jewish meditation, what it means, where it comes from, how it's different from non-Jewish schools, its connection to Maasei Merkava, Kabbalah, and Chassidut, practical examples of what we can do to integrate meditation into our own davening, and much more, including an extensive discussion of the great Jewish meditation teacher, Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan, I spoke with two well-known teachers of Jewish meditation, Rabbi Professor Alan Brill and Rabbi Dr. Meir Sender. Rabbi Professor Alan Brill is the Cooperman Ross Endowed Chair for Jewish Christian Studies at Seton Hall University, where he teaches Jewish studies in the Department of Religion and the Jewish Christian Studies graduate program. Dr. Brill received his BA, MA, and ordination from Yeshiva University and his PhD from the Department of Theology at Fordham University. He specializes in interfaith theology, Jewish mysticism, modern Jewish thought, and contemporary Jewish orthodoxy. Dr. Brill is also the author of Judaism and World Religions, Christianity, Islam, and Eastern Religions, Judaism and Other Religions, Models of Understanding, and Thinking God, the Mysticism of Rabbi Tzadok of Lublin. Professor Brill was a Fulbright Senior Scholar for Research and Teaching at Banaras Hindu University, Varanasi, Uttar Pradesh, in India. This research produced his recent volume, Rabbi on the Ganges, A Jewish-Hindu Encounter. His next book is tentatively entitled, A Jewish View of the Trinity. Rabbi Dr. Meir Sender is director and facilitator of Tal Orot, a Jewish contemplative society dedicated to the refinement of spiritual and ethical awareness through authentic Jewish meditation practices and Torah study. For 32 years, he served as the rabbi of the young Israel of Sharon, Massachusetts. He received smicha from Harav Yosef Dov Salvechik Zatzal, Yeshivat Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan, Yeshiva University, and his doctorate from Harvard University under Rabbi Professor Yitzchak Tversky Zatzal in medieval Jewish history. He teaches Kabbalah, Hasidut, Jewish philosophy, Halakha, Jewish history, and Jewish ethics, and he writes on issues in Jewish spirituality, Halakha, ethics, and Jewish history. He and his wife, Anne, live in Sfat, Israel. Professor Alan Brill, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start off by talking about one of the people who's been known as one of the great meditation teachers in the Jewish tradition over the past 40 years, he died in 1983. I'm speaking about Rabbi Arya Kaplan. And despite the fact that he hasn't been around for that long, I think he's probably more popular now than ever before. At least that's how it seems to be on a popular level. He has been known as one of the main advocates of a Jewish approach to meditation. And you, Professor Brill, 
uh, not quite his biographer, but you did write an article about him. You've written several posts about him on your on your site. So let's start off. Tell me a little bit about Arya Kaplan. So first of all, I'd love to be his biographer. I've interviewed dozens of students. And if people invite me, I've got some ready lectures on other parts of his life. You know, part of it is that, you know, he's it was really always a lone person. You know, he really thought he was rederiving everything on his own. He kept files on meditation. And when he became rabbi in the conservative congregation in Albany in 1970, he discovered that the counterculture at SUNY Albany was for the first time enjoying what he liked, but the meditation. So then he started giving public lectures on Kabbalah and meditation. So do you mean that his interest wasn't in response to the counterculture, but dovetailed with it? It dovetailed. He had been interested in these things. He had been keeping files on Taimei Hamitzvot and on Tanakh and on all sorts of things since the 60s. How did he start getting involved in this? What's a little bit of his life story? So his life story was really he grew up, his sisters were put in orphanages. He managed to become a street kid, found his way to Frumkite, found his way to Yeshiva, got involved with Rev. Rosenfeld of Breslov. Afterwards, he went for a BA in Louisville, Kentucky, where he met his wife from Mississippi. He then, he then did a master's in physics, realizes what it's not what he wants and goes off and takes a series of liberal pulpits around the country for several years. Now, did he take these liberal pulpits, Dafka, intentionally, or that's yes, what the job he could get? According to, I mean, his, one of his grandchildren asked his, asked his widow and said, yes, that's who he was. Don't, don't rewrite who he was. But he still was coming from the Yeshiva Velt. So in 70, when he moved back to Brooklyn in 71, he put back on the black garment and could have a, a yeshiva's persona where he then did NCSY and OU and all sorts of things like that. That's interesting. So when you say that he really was like that, a liberal... I didn't say liberal. What was he then? He was someone who wanted to go out into America. He knew, don't put him into the box of whatever. You know, it was clearly he was not looking for an orthodox pulpit. Even though was he himself orthodox at that point, would you say, if you want to put him into a box? It's a difficult question to ask because one of his pulpits did not even have a Shabbat morning service and there were no other synagogues in town and there was no day school for his kids and certainly not on anything online for his kids. So whatever life he lived, you know, don't put him into our boxes. Okay, that's fair enough. I'm, I'm all for avoiding boxes. Of course, when he moved back to Brooklyn, was that in the beginning of the 70s? He went yeah. back into the Orthodox box. Completely into the Orthodox box. But he never looked for answers in the Orthodox box. And what he did is he started giving classes. I mean, he, he was briefly a Hillel director at Hunter. He was secretary for the Orthodox scientists. He did some translation from Maznayim. But as the 70s went on, he said he's going to do an archaeology to figure out what these texts mean. And he gathered a bunch of psychologists he thought if meditation is a psychological phenomena, he had read Tart's book on altered states of consciousness. He had read Huxley's Doors of Perception. Therefore, if he gathers around the room a dozen psychologists, he with them are going to crack the mystery of Jewish meditation. And he got also a lot of Bali Shuva and other people coming through. 
So these classes went on for several years. They produced a whole bunch of different works, and his works are posthumous. They're all the job of the editors. The books are not his legacy directly. He gave these classes. He left behind manuscripts. He left behind notebooks with lots of material. And it was up to the posthumous editors to create these things. Why didn't he publish these during his lifetime? I assume you're speaking primarily about his books on meditation and Kabbalah because he published plenty during his lifetime. He published because somebody was doing it. For example, NCSY, One and Peace is published, but not his, not the stuff he really loved. So he watched it published, but no one would do it? Is that what you're saying? His, Musnayim told him what would sell in the firm world, and therefore they actually edited it in a firm way, as I've also published chapters that were removed. But his first point was to turn to Samuel Weiser, the esoteric and theosophic non-Jewish publisher in the city. Right. They're from Maine, I believe, right? Yeah, but at the time had an office in here. It was, I mean, his whole world of connections is not what you would think. It's so interesting to see that. One thing that you wrote, which I found fascinating, was you said he was chronically underpaid and perhaps underappreciated by his community in Brooklyn. Did people realize what this person was, or is that something which now we only see after all these were published? It's only something we see now. They knew he was special. They knew he was interesting. They knew he was local color. They knew he was a tremendous Talmud Chacham. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't living on the margins, slightly outside of the community, and doesn't mean anyone was supporting him or putting him up. NCSY liked him because he you know, could address all these things for NCSY. Pinchas Stopler liked him because he could write on all sorts of topics for them, but not in any sense of who he was. And what happened posthumously that changed that? Because right now you walk into any American yeshiva in Israel and meditation and Kabbalah and inner space and all of his other books on meditation, which no one would touch in his own lifetime, published by Weiser, all of those books are totally primary texts for people who are Bali Shuva and even not Bali Shuva. So his widow, with consultation with others, including with Art Scroll, then produced a posthumous collection of his writings from what he left behind. So why did they become accepted? Meaning what changed in the perception of him? This was a person who was living on the margins, and now, at least it seems to me anecdotally, that his works are considered mainstream orthodox thought. If you want to learn about orthodox meditation, Arya Kaplan is address number one. So the answer is even a lot of those closest to him in the OU did not really know his life story. Uh They didn't really know very much about him. They didn't really know his thinking. They knew him in the black suit who showed up at NCSY. There are people who held his manuscripts for safekeeping already in 72 who had no idea of who he was in 1970. That's interesting. And I've asked them repeatedly, do you have any? They had no idea. They just assumed. Meaning they had no idea that this was someone who once held a pulpit in a non-Orthodox shul. Or that he, you know, is basically an orphan or a breast lover, all sorts of things. Let me ask you, you mentioned or allude to something else. I think it was in the introduction to Jewish meditation. Arya Kaplan says that because of some of his books or because of some of what he's written, the Lubavitcher Rebbe issued a directive that Jewish meditation should be further explored. But I think you write that the Lubavitcher Rebbe actually condemned him. Right. So in 1979... 
the Rebbe gave a sicha condemning the meditation, which at that time was TM, not this mindfulness, but it was TM, condemning the how that it was all over. He was condemning people going to the swamis, and therefore he said, we've got to develop a kosher version, but a kosher version that's going to be generic and secular. The Rebbe then met with a variety of people to develop a secular Jewish meditation. But during his life, the Rebbe did not republish the large number of Chabad manuals on meditation or the Chabad manuals on visualization. Meaning that all the Rebbe uh, Rashab things on Kunshas Avoda and all that, I had to photocopy from old volumes because the Rebbe did not want them republished. He wanted something secular. Aryeh Kaplan was going out there and exploring the Jewish texts. What could be done not to prevent people from going off to the Hindu versions, but actually let's reclaim this tradition. So why did the Rebbe not like that? Why did the Rebbe condemn that? The Rebbe, the Rebbe was not interested in bringing these back. You know, the, he, there was a clear derech. And at the same time, the Rebbe was very this-worldly oriented. Or as the Rebbe says in the essence of Chassidus, just to put it in sharp terms, we don't need all the spherotic realms anymore, but just the direct devotion of the heart can get straight up to Kesser. We live a life directly connected to Kesser, and by definition, meditation is understanding there's a ladder of psychological discipline and work to get there. Okay, I know this is getting a little aside, but I'm curious what you mean then when the Rebbe said he wanted some sort of secular meditation. I know it means not spherotic, but then what did he refer to? What was he alluding to? He he meant something like, you know, saying over and over again. I mean, mantra technically means a holy word, and japa means a repetition of it. But in English, you use the word mantra for saying something over and over again. Like eventually the psychologist by the end of the 70s and early 80s, said, say Coca-Cola over and over, or, or the word one, or the word echad. Just repeat that for 15 minutes a day. So that's something that the Rebbe had in mind, but he didn't want something that was more into contemplation of the spherot or something along those lines. Right, and you can see people who developed in the early 80s, not the people he originally asked, but people like Rev. Label, uh, Wolf and others who developed speaking tours where they would say, oh, do this. Professor Brill, let me ask you something about Aryeh Kaplan's methodology. You mentioned before his verbal archaeology, where he tried to go back in with the psychologists and Sambali Chuva to figure out the original meditative meaning of these texts. Do you think that his methodology is an accurate description of what these texts mean, or is it something that was imposed from without? What's your opinion about that? So it's not a yes-no answer, meaning whatever a 12th century text could mean in the 20th century there's no way to read it clean. I mean, I credit Arya Kaplan for being the Swami Vivekananda of Judaism. Swami Vivekananda was the Hindu representative to the World Parliament of Religion in the 1890s. But Swami Vivekananda took obscure metaphysical Hindu meditation books and ripped out single lines and said, we're only going to do this. Instead of these long visions of endless cycles, very complex. Swami Vivekananda said, visualize you're in a ball of light. Visualize, you're in a visualize you've got a crown of light. Visualize you're in a lotus. Things that could now be taught 
1930. No longer are you doing the complex meditations that were in the Kurma Purana and all those. Arya Kaplan brilliantly did the same thing for Torah. You're not doing the full versions, and nobody, almost nobody's doing the full versions now, uh, except for a few people we can talk about. But they're picking out pieces and lines to create the meditative state that you don't need the 10th, 11th, 12th century versions. That's interesting. So he took certain a piece of a text and used that instead of teaching the text itself, the whole thing. And then he's got to put it in modern psychological language, which also becomes, remember he had a room of psychologists around him. And that became the question, is it like this? Is it like that? I mean, he clearly read, you know, things like Charles Tart's uh, Altered States of Consciousness. He's putting it into that language. He definitely liked Huxley's Doors of Perception, in which meditation opens up your mind to brilliant insights and things coming in and opening up in that sense. He was very much not going the mindfulness, the pasna, emptying your mind, calming yourself, stilling yourself. It was how do you get that higher consciousness, which he then, uh, in some of his works, becomes defined with Navua and connects that back to texts about how to get Navua. So, Professor Brill, I remember reading that you said he wasn't actually an experienced meditator himself. So all this is very interesting. It sounds as though it's something that he would advocate but didn't actually participate in so much. Is that right? So, like you see the Jewish meditation, you see he would do it for an evening. He would show up at a congregation. I've spoken to many of the students, many of them, wished he was actually doing it. He would sometimes say, let's experiment. But there was no regular practice. There was no sit. If you came to him for a class on this, it didn't involve an experiential level. One of his biggest students afterwards, because there was no real meditation practice, went off and got trained as a Buddhist meditator monk. Another one went back to Hindu traditions, uh, and they live here in Teaneck. Another one went off and followed Colette's uh, visualizations. But he did not. He, he he opened the door. He showed you what is there. He translated it for how to do it. But then he actually never took it further. Meaning he created, he actually also, the way he read it, for example, he created the meditation, Ribono Shalom, to repeat that as a mantra. That's not actually in Breslov text. If you can't do Hospodidus, just then say Ribono Shalom. He turns it into a mantra, and therefore already through the 80s, people start doing that because, yes, it works. But he wasn't sitting there saying Ribono Shalom over and over again for 20 minutes a day. Well, everything that you're saying about Arya Kaplan certainly confirms your point that he can't really be put into a box, which is something which I certainly respect. And he definitely deserves tremendous respect from all of us for his teachings, which have provided spiritual sucker for so many. So let's move on to your own experience and your own ideas teaching meditation, because Professor Brill, in addition to being a professor at Seton Hall, you also are a rabbi. You got your start teaching meditation, I believe, at Maimonides School in Brookline, Massachusetts, my own alma mater. It was after I'd already graduated there. But how did you get involved in teaching meditation? How did that start for you? So it was actually very innocently. I was interested in Kabbalah. I was finishing a doctorate in Kabbalah and Chassidut, and I was always practicing the techniques. I was doing them. I was involved. I showed up my money as the first year, and nobody was really davening. 
They all wanted to talk. So I said, first I photocopied articles from uh, Rav Hirsch and Steinsaltz and others on Tefillah. said, at least if you're not going to dive in, don't talk and don't disrupt. I ran out of articles after about two weeks. And then I said, look, you're coming on this trip with me, whether you like it or not. We are going to be doing meditation during davening. And I could have been fired on the spot, but they tolerated it because it actually worked. Uh, and that's how I wound up doing it publicly. And then I wound up bringing it into my classrooms and they were very happy. And I started teaching it at Hebrew College down the road to me. To, and I taught the meditation publicly till uh, about 2000 and something when meditation lost its real meaning and people expected me doing a drum circle or healing and I wasn't doing healing circles or whatever. So I just stopped at that point. And now I've started again here in a local uh, minyan teaching every Shabbat again. What do you mean that meditation lost its real meaning? Because what changed? Meditation, meditation became a, a, people started showing up saying, oh, I'm going to do a, you know, our new age positive energies and then a little music and a little new good. It, meditation didn't know long when they saw the word, it didn't mean that meditation just meant an assortment of new age things for an hour. You mentioned before that the reason that the administration at Maimonides tolerated it was because, as you said, it worked. So I want to know what it means that it worked. And then after that, perhaps you can give me a definition of what meditation is. Okay. So it worked because it actually got people to sit there quietly still and actually to focus. I said, you know, at least try it for the Shema, whatever, to work on it. And in those days, my, you know, focus was very basic, like, you know, you read the Rambam in the Morna in 351. He says, first practice on the Shema. When you do this for a long time, bring to the first paragraph of Amidah. And then after several years, try it someplace else. The Rambam had a many-year approach. So I started with that very basic, like, if I can get you to do the Shema in one paragraph of Amidah with Kavanah, that would be wonderful. And, you know, it basically people sat through it. Uh, it worked in the classroom also, and I got better at doing it. And then I came to New York, and I continued to do it in all sorts of venues. So what is it? Can you explain what it is? Okay. So it is many different things. I can tell you what I do, but it is many different things. Meditation is just a generic English Christian word that got picked up with Hindu connotations and now Buddhist connotations. Meditation is a variety of techniques of repetition of words, visualization, watching your breathing, slowing down, all sorts of these techniques of inwardness that really are all very different. A yogic meditation on a candle is not the same as a mindfulness vipassana meditation, which is not the same as visualizing Shem Hashem. They're all different. But at that point, people just threw around the language and they were very happy to see any of these work. Then can you give some examples of what might be termed a Jewish form of meditation? So uh, the one you, I give just to let people realize how common this was, is you open the Mishnah Brura, and the Mishnah Brura right in the front is telling you to visualize Shem Hashem as soon as you get to Beit Knesset and to use the Nikudot of Yira of Chirik Shva Kamatz under the divine name. Something like that is, is a basic Jewish visualization of Shemot. And what's the point of it? What does it do? What's the purpose of it? 
So that becomes the problem here is the original purpose was this is part of the avoda, this is kavana, but now we've translated it into psychological terms. And part of it is we translate it now into focus, mental image, icon for your mind, a sense of adoration. But you can tell those people who've been influenced by, by the pop Buddhism start claiming it's going to now lead to control of anger and stilling your emotions and relieving stress and giving you calmness. That's a very American packaging of meditation. Let me ask you this. When I spoke to Rabbi Sender, he mentioned meditation. He had said a lot of things, but one of the things he said is that, and he was very much against any syncretic type of combining Jewish and Hindu or Buddhist traditions. He said that we have plenty within Judaism. We don't need to go outside. He also said, though, that part of the goal of meditation is, for lack of a better term, the experience of the divine presence, enabling your mind to have that experience of God, to communicate not with the idea of God, but with God. His example, he uses a mashal. He said that we're over Zoom. Before the Zoom, he could think about me. On the Zoom, he talks to me, and he said meditation helps in that sense. Is that, I'm not going to say a definition, but an example that you would agree that with? Is an, that is an example for you know, part of the spectrum. We're in agree- We're in agreement. What other purposes of meditation are there? So one that's not directly a sense of God is the one that's coming from the Beit Yosef, and it's in the Nefesh Chaim of Chaim Velazhin. You visualize the words of the Siddur before you pray them. The presence there is not God, but the presence is the intention while you pray. In other words, to have a better kavanah, to have a better tefillah. yeah. Other approach would be, for example, to feel not the single sense of divine, which is very much a tripping on the English here, but if you look at the Kavanaugh for Tkiyata Shofar, in which you're now entering into this realm of how our the Shofar blowing raises up into divinity and is bringing down Chasadim, it's not directly divine presence, but that's that whole inter-divine realm that you're entering into. That's why it's not just standing before the divine, but it's actually entering into the realm. So, for example, uh, Rabbi Re'em HaKohen from Yeshiva Atniel put out a wonderful sefer a few years ago called Kol Daka, in which he gives an introduction from the sugya of Mitzvot Srichot Kavana all the way up to why you should be visualizing during Kiera Shofar the... Schla's combination of, of Ramak and Ari Kavanaut. But you're entering into a process, a transformation of the day. It deals with a sense of Kedusha Dayom, a sense of the divine presence, but it's into something much bigger than just, you know, visualizing a person in front of you. But I don't think he would disagree with that. Professor Brill, you said before that the word meditation itself has become bastardized of sorts because we associate it with, or perhaps it comes from, other traditions and isn't really yeah. Jewish per se. So can you talk about some of the distinctions between what Jewish meditation is and the meditation of other traditions? And in particular, I'll mention, I know that you have written extensively about your encounters in the Hindu world, I believe. And that's, of course, well known for its meditative traditions. What makes Jewish meditation distinctive? So the answer is, in terms of techniques, the techniques are pretty universal. If All you want to do is tether the mind or have a visualization. Some of them are going to have an overlap, like see the four parts of a flame, 
the differences for certainly for Hindu meditation becomes what the object is. And the goal is not to have absorption into the divine. None of the Jewish texts are about absorption. What are they about? Is Dvikut about maintaining one's personality while, so to speak, clinging to the divine without being absorbed into the divine? It's about cleaving. It's about a certain state of dhyana, but it's not going further into samadhi, if we're going to be technical here. Okay, what does that mean? It's not the loss of self into a oneness. Ah, uh-huh, I see. On the other hand, Buddhist techniques, even though they're very in, are much more different than Jewish ones. Because there the goal is to turn tune everything out and, you know, focus on the self. But the funny thing is, you know, the words like mindfulness are cropping up everywhere in the from world. Around 2017, 2018, I started collecting this. I started receiving from the OU, from RCA, from YU alumni. All these things that had the word mindfulness meditation in it. And I was rather taken aback because of how little how little they actually meant mindful meditation, meaning there were all sorts of things where they just meant purpose in life, intention, stillness. Some cases it just meant, you know, having a purpose-driven life. One congregation even put out a little guide for Jewish mindfulness that had nothing we would call meditation in it whatsoever. It was all about, you know, a purpose-driven life. But the, the Buddhist techniques are all emphasis on emptiness. You know, if there's any quality to Buddhism was to deny the Hindu sense of self and the divine. And so therefore it's very different and it's very surprising how much it's playing a role now. But know that there are several Roshi Yeshiva and Breslov teachers who now teach a Breslov version of the Buddhist the, uh, Buddhist technique. Openly so? No, they're going to say it's all Rav Nachman, but for those of us who are reading it, when they start promising you stress control and anger management and whatever, they're taking it from some brochure. I mean, they start giving you a bunch of 20 promises that are taken from a New Age brochure. Or, for example, even if you look at, you know, the from news, online newspapers, versus nice and vim and all is you'll see ads for meditation for calmness for stillness and they're going to say they're following the derech of rabbinical's bunker who is a rabbi in jerusalem who is now teaching this stuff as torah and you're saying it's actually buddhist meditation in its essence no because a lot of it now is clinical meditation it's now sit back relax close your eyes you know let go a lot of it is standard stuff, you know, about how to, you know, any of the pain control management books or cancer management books have all these techniques, which are Buddhist derived. That's interesting. And that's what mindfulness means in the secular world. And they're using that term perhaps inappropriately in some contexts. Yeah. That's interesting. Is that what the Lubavitcher Rebbe, going back to what you said initially, is that what he wanted? Something secular? He might have. We never got, to, we never, you know, could ask further because it never came to be in his time. Meaning meditation in his time was overwhelmingly Hindu derived and therefore Kabbalah was a good fit. However, since the 1990s and now it's overwhelmingly Buddhist derived and that's something completely different that allows you just to say, watch your breathing, which is something very different. 
If a Jew today wants to find an authentic Jewish approach to meditation, not what you're describing as Buddhist-derived practices or something that someone got off a brochure and then finds some Judaic way of adapting it, if you want to find authentic Jewish meditation today, do you find it in the Hasidic movement? Do you find it in specific Hasidic sects? Are there other places to look? I mean, I think you can leave Hasidus out of it directly, meaning, for example, there's a group of Vitebskers who meet at the Mir who are teaching the techniques of Rav Avram Yurovich, who put out a little Kuntras Derech Hasaga, meaning Rev Erlinger's Sheva Nayim Varoez techniques, everyone has who's interested has a copy of that. And they're really mis- not as much, not what a modern Orthodox thinks is Lasidus. They're much closer to be part of the yeshivish world. If you want to do Abulafia, you know Rev Avram Gross, who's now teaching Abulafia directly with the full, the full medieval forms of Abulafia. You have, I mean, you have this all over the, like I said, you can go to River Ama Kohen and have his manual teaching you, getting you from the Gemara through modern Orthodox Rishonim all the way up to the Shla about how to do these things. Uh, you now have Rafataya Nagar, who's, you know, and all the Hezder Yeshiva teaching you, teaching the generation how to read a Rizal Kavanot. You know, it's not hidden if you're looking for it. If we look back at the Mishnah in Chagiga, in the second parak, which said that Masei Merkava, let's work with the assumption now that that is a meditative discipline. It should be only taught to a wise student and then only by giving him the basic ideas so he can figure it out on his own, implying that this is not something which the masses should have access to. Do you think that that nowadays, what we're doing, it's true for meditation now? Or is that not the case anymore? We're talking about something different and the Mishnah there meant something entirely different. So I think it meant something completely different because once again, the Mishnah in Brachot, as soon Hasid and Rishonim, would wait for an hour. There are all sorts of, you know, the Mishnah Brewer telling you to visualize Shem Hashem is not Masim Rekava, that's basic sense of a presence of Hashem when you come to Beit Knesset. You know, whatever Masim Rekava is, you know, Arya Kapp was it, that's a very extreme technique that's not that's not the basics of, you know, one, two, three. You know, when Yehuda Halevi in the Kuzare in the third part gives you visualizations for tefillah, it's assuming that everyone is doing it. And when he tells you, when you say, you should visualize the Shrina in front of you as if you're bowing down in front of the Shrina. That's not Masim Rekava. For him, that's basic visualizations that go along with the prayer process. Mm-hmm. So what is Masse Merkava in your opinion? Whatever Masse Merkava is, is something that is going up into the seventh heavens. It is going up into that in which it's a rare occurrence of four people in which only one person came out. But this is really the garden variety stuff that I can call from Rambam, Avram ben Rambam, Yehuda Halevi, from all over. Things that are much more accessible to the masses. That's right. If somebody were to say he wants or she wants to be involved in meditation, what would then be the highest goal of this meditation? If somebody becomes extremely successful and really learns how to do it properly, Jewish meditation coming from a Jewish source. Rabbi Sender talked about how 
the ultimate goal can be, even though it may not be accessible nowadays, a type of prophecy for a Jew living in 2022, what would be the highest goal that is reachable when it comes to meditation? So I'm not going to use the Aryeh Kaplan language of prophecy because it's just, it, it's not what we actually use. None of us read Yisodei HaTorah on Tilchotvila and say we're now striving with prophecy. It's just not the common language and it fractures the ear in a way. You know, even Rav Soloveitchik connects prayer to prophecy, but it doesn't mean I'm not, you know, I'm not going to go in that way. It becomes a way of there. Like I said, there are different techniques. Some of the techniques are for focus during tefillah or performance of mitzvot. Some of it is the general richer religious life of having divine presence, or even divine presence that's not specifically tefillah mitzvah oriented, but a series of visualizations. Some of it is having a more visual Judaism. I mean, for me, that, that's a very important part, is that we teach Judaism in a very non-visual way. If everything had a visual component, it's very different. You know, the Zohar is a visual tradition, Tachazei, come and see. And Piasetzen and Rav Cook were both, both very much also into a sense of vision, the Chazon. So besides increasing tefillah, it is the presence even outside of that. It is a sense of a visual Judaism or Torah. And for many people, it's just learning to calm down and to have this mental focus, which itself is not bad. Professor Brill, you've spoken primarily about meditation taking place in perhaps more Haredi contexts. What's happening in the modern Orthodox or religious Zionist world regarding meditation? You mentioned Yeshiva Otniel. Is it happening in other places too? So it's happening in all in that whole you know selection of Siach uh, and Ko and all the others. But beyond that, you'll have all over the place a turn to studying Rav Eckstein's Tanai HaNefesh which is a bunch of visualization techniques from the 1920s. It's a hot item within all over all over the Shtachim right now. You will find people are doing Piyasetzna, and where the English speakers tend to, to focus on the stillness meditation, because it seems somewhat Buddhist, the, you'll find a lot of Dati'im who are doing the visualization techniques, doing it for a sense of once again, they're not doing it just for the sense of kavanah, but to have a more embodied, envisioned form of Torah. The Piyasetsa is very in, but those who are in the meditation pick out very, very different parts from it. And you'll have all sorts of retreats that go on in different places that once you're in, once you see that they're there, you know, they're all over the place. Okay, so I have three more questions and then we'll conclude. My first question is this. Do you think that this renewed emphasis on meditation today, it sounds like it's all over the place, is going to have a major effect on what Orthodox or religious Judaism becomes over the next hundred years? Or is this a fad that isn't going to really affect things in a Yisodi basic way? How is this going to change Judaism or is it going to change Judaism at all? So I don't think it's going to affect it in a Yisodi way. I do think that one we threw we threw it out with the rise of modernity. You know, I in a longer version when I'm telling stories, you know, we've got stories about how the how Shadal refused to use Kavanaut. Well, we have a great story of Lillenbloom, the Moskiel, 
Say he was inflamed all Rosh Hashanah, visualizing the divine name in 1861. And then two years later, he comes back to Beit Kedesh and he's still inflamed. And then he becomes a Moscow, gives up belief in God, and says he can't do it anymore. We threw it out completely, and we threw everything, much of this out. Aryeh Kaplan was one of the people bringing it back to bring this full circle, which is why he's so in. In contrast, where Swami Vivekananda said Hindu modernity by its very nature is going to be meditative, or Buddhist modernity is going to be meditative. We threw it out. It's going to be back there. It's going to be back there for spiritual seekers. In the 21st century, in the year 2030, you're not going to have ask, do Jews meditate, or do we have meditation traditions? For those who are interested, it will always be there. But at the same time, pietistic practices were never the full-time for the full-time busy business person these were really always for the spiritual person who wanted to devote their time to it you know it's the same way you tell people that you go to a buddhist temple in new york city in chinatown and they'll throw you out if you meditate because it's all about making offerings to the gods for prosperity um you don't they don't meditate most Jews are not going to meditate, but they will be softened. They'll know it's there. They may have done it in yeshiva or whatever school or whatever for a week, a month. Uh, they've had a crazy teacher who does it. They may have more than one teacher who does it. But it's now not going to be thrown out again. It's now going to be part of the reintegrated of things that we got rid of at the end of the 19th century. Okay, for those spiritual seekers, this is my second question. What books would you recommend in English, for those people who are looking how to meditate, and perhaps in Hebrew as well, if you have some recommendations. So the question is, I would usually ask people how they got there and what do they do, what have they done first? Because usually people have tried things and different things, and therefore they're looking for specific things. You know, the person who's turning to meditation because they're in so much emotional distress or pain is not the person who wants to do it for better intention while they pray. They're very different people coming to you. And I get these people all the time. The first thing is to speak to them where they're coming, where they're going, what, are they, what do they need? There's not one size fits all, uh, like many things. But certainly Arya Kaplan since, was certainly vague enough and open enough that he is you know, quite useful in that account. For example, Jewish Meditation and his other books. There's certainly there's certainly a good place to start. Okay. And my final question, Professor Brill, is we're now in the period of the Chagim, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Simchas Torah. Can you give, now this is your rabbi hat rather than your professor hat, could you give an example of an easy technique that somebody listening to this podcast who'd like to experience some form of basic meditation either as part of davening or after davening or before davening, can you give a recommendation, something that they can do? So being that I'm going to be leading meditation before davening to the Chavram with here is before davening, you do something that's going to focus. And my Chavram prefers the light meditations that go from the Shah HaKavanah uh, from the 13th century up a series of light meditations that you are in the light or to put it in the 16th century sim simplification from the Sefer Haredim. You are now, you now see the divine as a ball of white light. You are in the ball of white light, and you are now the wick of blue light that you're in. 
And if that works for you, that's fine. If not, I'd say just visualize your kevavke. For Tkiyat Shofar, I'm going to go through with people probably with a hand with a thing about before Tkiyat Shofar. We'll have a little break and I'll teach for a little while where I'll go through some of the basic cover notes taken from the Shlomo, exactly like Ra'im HaKohen did, but I may not pick out the same ones because I've been doing this for decades, you know, before he came out, about which ones I find best during Tkiyat Shofar, but it's hard to do on one foot by this. But a few, a few, if you own a traditional machzer, meaning not, not one of the modern ones, but a traditional one like Eshkol, which is still is being sold, you will find a few kavanot in the margins there, even though we've been trained to ignore them. They're already there in the margins. And do you find those helpful, those particular kavanot? Very helpful, and so do people I teach them to. What does one do with those kavanot in the margins? One, one visualize. There are various visualizations of movement, and they're different. I mean, part of this is learning even how you're going to do it. I know, I mean, I differ with my colleague, uh, Rav Meir Sender, he lets people start immediately with a shiluv of Adnot and Yudke Vavke, and I've discovered people are, can't start with that. People can't handle more than four letters at a time in their mind. That means the combination of eight letters together, four and four. Right. And he, he starts with that in class one or two, and we've had this debate going back for 30 years, and I say people, beginners, can't do more than about four letters at a time, and therefore you're going to pick out the same sequence, but limited to four-letter versions. Okay. Well, Professor Alan Vril, this has been enlightening. I think that's probably the proper term in this case, and I really enjoyed it. And I want to thank you for all of your knowledge and for being with me today. Pleasure being here. Rabbi Mayor Sander, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. It's a great honor. Uh, we've, uh, we've been following your career for a long time, and our, our families go back for many, many years. So this is an honor and a great pleasure for me as well. Let's jump in and talk about Jewish meditation today, especially as we approach the Amim Noraim. People are trying to hopefully experience God and feel Hashem's presence in their lives, which makes me think this is a very important time and an opportune time to talk about other ways of experiencing Hashem or perhaps deepening our experience of Hashem. Let me open up by asking you what the place of meditation is in Torah and Halakha, and where do we find it? Yeah, it's uh, it's a great and important question. We find it First of all, in the uh, reference to it in, in the Mishnah Brachot, the uh, fifth parak, first Mishnah, that uh, talks about Hasidim, Harishonim, Hayushonim, Sha'achat, Umit Palalim, Kadeshi Yakabnu Libam Abim Sheba Shemayim. So the, they would wait, the, the early righteous ones would wait for an hour and then pray in order to focus their hearts on their Father in heaven. The Rambam uh, in Perish Mishnayot uh, says, the definition of showing is mamtinim, okay. That they would he wait. says that they would wait, and then sha'achat mafsikin hasicha bahamach shavot ba'azmat chilit balil. So it's not just that they would be quiet verbally and not talk, that's certainly, but also quiet their thoughts. This waiting period is understood as a hashkata, a, a quieting down, uh, in preparation for tefillah. And that's one of the, the major let's say, aims and, folk, and functions of meditation is preparation for tefillah, uh, very much like you mentioned earlier, to deepen our sense of, of connection with Hashem, uh, a sense of vekut, uh, a sense of the reality of Hashem. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a very important aspect of, 
of meditation. The thing is, though, that uh, the Mishnah seems to attribute this meditation to Hasidim Rishonim, the early righteous ones, which sounds like a an extra pious practice, uh, we call supererogatory, yeah, pious practice for special people. When you go into the, the Gemara on this Mishnah, the Gemara in, in, uh, in Brachot, there, uh, first of all, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says, any mitpalel needs to wait for an hour after tefillah. And then a bright is brought saying that someone who, who prays So before tefillah for an hour, after tefillah for an hour to wait in this waiting. Uh, and actually, very interesting, Tosfot here says throughout most of, of Shas, when the uh, the Gemara talks about Sha'ah. It means kind of a, a, a small period of time. Here it means one hour, literally. Literally 60 minutes, literally so to speak. Literally well, 60 minutes, yeah, a full hour. From the Gemara, it's, it turns into an obligation for everyone. It's mentioned also by the, in, in Shulchan Aruch, uh, the tour of the Shulchan Aruch. Again, there's a, more of a, a practice for particularly pious people, Chassidim Ve'anshe Ma'ase. But it's recommended for everyone as a preparation for tefillah. I mean, the, the tour goes into an extraordinary dis, uh, description of, and there's no question we're not to, just talking about waiting some time, but a real meditation. It involves hitpashtut, which is a stripping away of a sense of physicality, uh, to the, so that you are pure seichel to strengthen the the, the, the koach hasichli, pure this, mind, uh, your, to the mind. In other words, and so this is a discipline of mind. Uh, and it's it's in Tur and Shulchan Aruch. Uh, interesting that you have many other halachot and wonderful minhagim that people take very seriously, which perhaps are, are less directly connecting us with Hashem. And here we have one that's really highly recommended that really you know helps us in our relationship to Hashem. And it's it seems like it's not as widely practiced as it might be. And that's where. You know, I, uh, I'm trying, my wife and I created a, an amuta called uh, Tao Orot. It's a society for authentic Jewish meditation practice. And we feel kind of a, a mission to do this. So so that's on the halakhic level. Can I ask a question about that, though? I'm actually yeah. curious yeah. because you talked about how in the Gemara and obviously referencing the Mishnah and in the later in the Shulchan Aruch and the tour, it speaks about preparing for tefillah for an hour beforehand. What would be the place of the hour after tefillah once you've already davened? That's a great question. Uh, and this is something I, I find very important. You know, the, the hour beforehand is to quiet our minds uh, from the kind of uh, mental chatter and that kind of internal narrative that we have, we, you know, that, that internal voice of ours that we use, but also can be distracting. It's, it's useful, but it's distracting. So we quiet that. And we can see why that's important for tefillah as a preparation to really focus your kavanah towards Hashem. Afterwards, the idea is to integrate your hasaga, what you've achieved in, in terms of your connection with Hashem, and integrate that into our practical action in the world. How will I now conduct myself, uh, engage in mitzvot, engage in gimilut uh, chasadim, or what, you know, an ethical practice? How, what impact will this meditation have on my uh, active halachic life. And that's the, the hour afterwards, that, that integration of the awareness that we're achieving uh, into uh, a deeper dedication to fulfilling Ritzon Hashem. And is that also a type of meditation? It is. In other words, it's applying that, that awareness to practical action. And that takes mental focus as well, to, to think about the, the things in your life that you can fix, the things, uh, this, every situation that you're in, how you can approach it perhaps more effectively, more creatively. 
Yeah, it's a it's a form of meditation. And is the tefillah itself a form of meditation? In other words, it sounds like the hour before is a preparatory meditation. The hour afterwards is putting it into practice in a meditative way, a different type of meditation. How about, Gemara also says, if I recall, tefillah itself should take an hour. Yeah. Is that itself a type <laughs> yeah. of meditation? Or is it tefillah talking to God in conversation that's not a meditative practice per se? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Uh, I, I would say it this way. If you're taking an hour for tefillah, you've turned your tefillah from merely saying words to something more contemplative, uh, where at each moment uh, and every word, you're really trying to talk to Hashem, not just to an idea of God, uh, not just rattling off the words, but really trying to communicate with Hashem. And that means at every moment, sort of orienting ourselves, what does it mean to be really talking to Hashem? That's an extraordinary thing. And I, I think, and I, I, the point you're making, I think, is really important. If we're taking an hour for tefillah, and by the way, this, this applies to all of the tefillot. Shachrit, we're talking nine Emma, hours a day. Yeah, right. The Gemara actually raises that question. If you're, if you're you know, meditating and davening uh, nine hours a day, when do these uh, these Chassidim uh, HaRishon have time to, to do anything? To, and he says, because they're doing this, they're learning and their work is blessed. So they're more effective in their lives. And that's actually another benefit of meditation. The mental focus that you get, the clarity and focus, does help you be more effective in life. And yes, the, uh, taking an hour, uh, and so the implication is the focus on the Amidah, uh, taking an hour at that turns it into a contemplative meditation of a certain type as well. I mean, I'd rather call it contemplative in that sense. I mean, it's, it is tefillah, it's discursive. It's not just pure consciousness, it's words in consciousness, but it gives it a different quality. And I think that's important. Good, that's a good point. Then let's take what you just said and go with it. What is meditation? We've talked about how we have to do it according to, or at least we're supposed to do it according to Rabbi Shubin Levi and the Shulchan Aruch and the Torah highly recommend it. What is this thing that we're talking about called meditation? We mentioned three different types just now, but what is it? Essentially, it's the discipline of consciousness. Why is that important? You know, if we think of it this way, any skill that we have, we have a certain profession, if we're a craftsperson, you know, whatever the profession is, we learn to use our tools. You learn the discipline of the tools that, that you're using. So if you're a, you know, a carpenter, you learn to use the tools. You know, if you're a plumber, you learn to use the tools. Uh, if you're Talmud Chacham, you learn how also you know, to, to use the, the materials that are your tools. The tool of tools, the instrument of instruments is consciousness. This is what facilitates everything that we are and everything that we think, say, do, consciousness. It's interesting that whereas, you know, any serious professional will, will really work on developing his skills, most people rarely put any time to developing the skill of thought, the skill of pure consciousness itself and directing and focusing our minds. And so meditation is the discipline of consciousness that includes uh, discipline of thinking, which is a verbalization of thoughts, the discipline of emotion uh, and how to, to direct our emotion, uh, open up our hearts effectively, and then you know how to act in the world in effective ways. And so it's the discipline of consciousness. Most meditation practices uh, begin with some form of hashkata, of quieting. And this is to quiet the verbal chatter, which is often distracting and to stabilize our attention you know, while we're stabilizing our attention, to expand our attention even further, uh, and then ultimately to connect ourselves, heart consciousness as well as mind consciousness, 
with a Kaddish Baruch Hu. I mean, that's the, the general direction of, uh, of meditation. So it's, it is the skill, the discipline of consciousness and putting time into that. A lot of people associate meditation, and you can tell me this is incorrect, but a lot of people I think associate it with the beginnings of what they might call spiritual experiences, maybe experiencing God in a more direct way. How is that related to what you call the discipline of consciousness? How does the discipline of consciousness lead to that if it indeed does? Yeah, that, that's an important point also. I mean, the, you know, we, we talked about the meditation, uh, developing consciousness, the preparation for tefillah. There's also meditation, developing consciousness on its own in Torah tradition for the purpose or towards the aim of dveikut. Uh, we can get into that more deeply as well. There's even higher levels of awareness uh, that our, tor our Torah tradition, particularly Kabbalistic and Hasidic traditions, talk about. That's meditation itself. So among the, the advantages of, of, uh, of meditation is that we learn to distinguish between mere ideas and concepts and real awareness of reality. That, it's an important distinction. I mean, uh, m much of our time is spent in the realm of words, ideas, concepts, which are taking small pieces of reality uh, and often get in between us and the real itself. Uh, you know, most of us, um, you know, if we have uh, a, a spiritual life, we try to relate to Hashem, to God, and yet the way in which we normally relate to Hashem most of the time is in terms of an idea. Hashem is a concept, as an idea, even a name. Do we ever really relate to Hashem as Hashem? You know, to the extent that a human being can do that. To be able to distinguish between when you're merely conceptualizing something, which is kind of a placeholder for the, for the real thing itself, and actually relating to the, the reality itself, that's an important awareness that meditation you know, sort of cultivates for you. It's a distinction, I mean, just to make it clear. You know, earlier today, I was thinking about our podcast, and I was thinking about you. Okay, so I had an idea of you and that I was going to be talking with you. But right now, we're relating. And even though it's a virtual reality, we're really relating. And you, know, you and I are really connecting. Uh, I'm not holding an idea of you in my mind and, you know, and trying to, uh, to relate to you. I'm relating directly to you. Similarly, when we connect with Hashem uh, in a meditative way, uh, we learn to distinguish between mere ideas of God that what we usually make make do with most of the time, and God, and Hashem himself, to the extent that we can connect. Uh, and that's a subtle distinction, but one, one that becomes much more uh, clear and poignant uh, through meditation practice. That sounds fantastic and something which is obviously extremely worthwhile. My question remains, how is it that we know that even though I feel that I'm in the process of meditation relating directly to God rather than an idea of God, that I'm not just making a projection of an idea in my mind. It might be that this thing that I am relating to is still the product of my mind, even though it might be a right brain experience instead of a left brain experience. So how do I really know that it actually is God? And I'll strengthen the question a little bit. I have my own approach towards this, but not to get too into syncretism, et cetera, but people who are Christian, who are meditators, they have a direct connection in their meditation, presumably, to Christian images of God. And Muslims have a direct connection to Muslim images of God. And the same thing is true, perhaps even for pagans who have pagan images of God. All of them think they're having a direct image of God rather than an idea of God. How do we know that we're doing something that's different? 
Yeah, the, the language is interesting because you're, how do we know having direct image of God versus an idea of God? Well, even the term image. Well, I don't want to use the term image either. I was wrong in saying that for sure. <laughs> it's all right. No, no but, it, but it, 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 I think it, it highlights the, the challenge uh, because to get beyond image and beyond concept and in beyond uh, idea of God to relating to God. I, I, again, I, I, the, the example I give is, you know, we're very accustomed to using cell phones. Uh, and you can even put a you know an earbud in your uh, in your ear and use a cell phone and and, and forget the you know the uh, the smartphones we can actually see or like you know uh, Zoom where you actually see the the other person. But we're comfortable just talking out into the ether to another person, and we don't start to imagine them you know imagine them as as we're walking along talking out into the air. We sense their reality intuitively. When you're really relating with Hashem, you sense Hashem's presence really in your heart uh, and in your mind. It's a, not merely an idea of God. I'm not holding some concept of God. You know that you're in the presence of God. I'll give uh, you know, uh, one of the, the references in, in our tradition. I mean, the, the Piazetzner Rebbe uh, famously, uh, the, in, in the, uh, an addendum in his Zerach Melech, there's a, a letter uh, written by one of his uh, Talmidim about the meditation practice that the Rebbe recommended uh, to the student and his uh, his hafruta uh, called hashkata and this has become ra- rather popular in, in in some torah circles rightly so it's a uh, it's a beautiful simple quieting meditation quieting the mind i recommend people read that uh, that uh, that chapter it's it's very insightful about the nature and the value of meditation and the rebbe says at the end of this 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 letter it's quoted at the end That the the Rebbe said that if you meditate just for a few minutes every day, after about a month, you will be able to sense zekeli ba'anvehu. And so, point zekeli, your sense of Hashem will be so immediate, so real, uh, that it's like this is God. I can throw words at this. Uh, I can promise you that this, you know, and guarantee. Yeah, the Rebbe guarantees it. Uh, And you know what? If you take him at his word you do have the experience. You have a sense that you don't have to be, and in fact, you put, put aside all ideas of God to relate to God. I mean, there's an extraordinary passage in Rebuta ben Barzillai of Barziloni's commentary on Sefi Yitzira, beautiful, powerful commentary, 12th to 13th century, where he says uh, that even an, an, an idea of God is a form of mental idolatry. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, Rabbeinu Bachim Bakuda in Chovot Levavot says essentially the same thing. Even the idea of God is mental idolatry. We want to, as Torah Jews, relate to Hashem directly. And there's a difference. I mean, you have to experience it to, to sense the difference, but you really get a sense that you are in communication with Hashem. It's not nevuah. Uh, that's, that's an extraordinary level, though, according to the Rambam, according to the Arizal, and uh, the go, one of the, the, the fruits of meditation ultimately is Ruach HaKodesh and Nebuah, if you, you know, for those who merit that. Rabbi Yitzhak says the same thing in his commentary on the Ramban. So it's a sense of real communication, of real presence, beyond all concepts, beyond all ideas, relating directly. Uh, I've thrown words at it. I don't know if that 
get it. But it, it, no, I, it, I think it's it's really fascinating what you're saying. It's inspiring in a lot of ways. Can I ask you a question about something which I sort of alluded to before? I've thought a lot recently about the difference between left brain consciousness and right brain consciousness. And for me, these are words too. I don't pretend to really know what I'm talking about. What I mean by this is left brain consciousness is usually what we call our logical processes, our reason, our ability to interact with the world in a practical way, whereas the right brain consciousness is looking at it in a more unitary sense. That's how I understand it. A lot of what meditation can do is allow you to switch from the left brain to the right brain and give you that sense of maybe transcending the normal reasonable processes that we have. I wonder sometimes, and I wonder if you agree with me on this, because of our tremendous and warranted emphasis on Limata Torah, which we've had for thousands of years, Sometimes in that process, again, which they celebrate a process, it's wonderful, a consequence, an unintended consequence, is a downplaying of the right brain, a downplaying of taking away ideas and instead focusing upon experience and presence. And sometimes I even wonder if in tefillah, we think about Hilchot tefillah, we think about all the laws of tefillah and the specific way we have to do it and the words we have to say, we turn what should be a fundamentally right brain process into a left brain process. Again, not to discount the halachot, I believe in following the halachot, but we have to balance it with what you're speaking about. First of all, do you agree with what I'm saying? And if so, is meditation a way of achieving that so that you can have both the left brain process of Limit HaTorah and the right brain process of tefillah and experience and presence? I, I, I totally relate to what you're saying. Um, and I think that the, the ultimate aim is an integration of them uh, completely. Um, you know, when, when Rav Chaim of Elogen, uh in the, the fourth shahr of uh, Nefesh Chaim, he talks about uh, that Limud Torah is itself Devekut. But he says that before you engage in Limud Torah, you should spend some time uh, in appreciating that as you're learning Torah, you are in the mind of HaKadosh Baruch Hu so to speak, kaviyacho. It doesn't recommend a formal meditation, but a little bit of taking that more, as you're saying, a kind of a right brain attitude to, to understand the total context of what you're doing, you know, in terms of, you know, you're immersed in Ritzon Hashem, Dahat Hashem, you're, you're immersed in that, uh, and to appreciate that, and that can enhance our learning, you know, our very disciplined learning. Listen, Lima Torah is itself a kind of mental discipline. I mean, not a kind of, it is a mental discipline. It's a, it can be even a contemplative approach. The Arizal certainly saw it uh, in a contemplative way. Uh, we have good, good testimony on that. So I, I think the goal is, and I, I think as you're alluding to, to enhance our discursive learning, the very verbal learning, uh, with a sense of greater context, which comes from that you know, let's call it that right brain unitive sense uh, of it was a sense of context. I mean, that's I think that the that that right brain gives us and the context is Hashem. When Rav Chaim says that we are immersed in Ritzon Hashem Dad Hashem, it's it's he really means the experience. I mean, if you've had this experience, by the way, in in learning, it's the most extraordinary thing. In some disciplines, they talk about being in the flow, right? In the flow of things, being in the flow of learning of you know learning Gemara is an, uh, understood as immersion in Da'at Hashem, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. So I, I think you're, you're right to suggest that perhaps meditation can even enhance our learning, not, not as a, you know, not as an alternative, but as a, a, to facilitate a deeper sense of learning in, in the way that, you know, the, you know, the great Rashi Yeshiva, uh, like, like Rav Chaim Volozhin, uh, suggested. Going back to some of the ideas that appear in the Gemara, Ancient texts, they talk about something called Ma'asei Merkava, second yeah. parak of Chagiga, 
which is the work of the chariot is associated with the first parak of Sefer Yecheskel and presumably involves some sort of meditative practice. Can you talk about the relationship between Maase Merkava and meditation as we understand it now? Yeah, it's explicit in uh, Rabbeinu Hananel on that sugya, and Rav Haigon has a uh, tshuva on this, uh, in which they're both explicit. It's a meditative practice. Rav Chaim Vital, at, at the, the end of the third part of Shari Kedusha, says explicitly that it was a meditative practice, uh, Maase Merkava. The meditation that was favored by um, the Arizal and uh, and his uh, his chug, Rav Chaim Vital says very perceptively, is very similar to that was that was done by the Ole Hechelod and the Yorde Merkavat. For sure, they, it, it was a meditative practice. It was it was a meditative, contemplative. It's, it's a very unique practice. I haven't haven't seen anything like this practice in the whatever whatever I know of um, of other meditation traditions. In Masa Merkava, what, what the, the aim is to, and this is what Rav Chaim Vital tells us in the uh, third part of uh, Shari Kedushah, the aim is to transform the imagination in a meditative way, to transform the imagination from an image-generating faculty, which is the way we usually use it, to transform from an image-generating faculty to a sense-perceptive faculty. Now, what that does is that a, mean? Yeah, well, that's a wild thing. Uh, he talks about the when when we purify our imagination thoroughly and quiet it completely so that we're not generating images, we're just letting our imagination be quiet and open, active, but not we're not generating the images. We can receive impressions in our imagination from other dimensions, heavenly dimensions. For those who merit this, I mean, we're talking. Not everybody can do this, but mm-hmm. the uh, we can receive impressions from angelic beings. What does uh, impressions mean? What do you mean by impressions? Uh, communication. Chaim Vital talks about this in uh, the beginning of Shar uh, Yehudim. He talks about receiving communications from Magidim, uh, from Nishamot that are not in this world but in other worlds, Tzadikim, even to the point of receiving communications from angelic beings okay i mean this these were things that that were done in the the hugari uh mabalafia in the 13th century talks about this and his uh, from his own meditation practices which were more vocal and linguistic the rambam in Mornvuchim, towards the end of, of part two gives a kind of psychology of prophecy of nevoah and there he says it's the imagination that receives impressions the Navi uses then to to translate those impressions to the people that he's uh, communicating to. Uh, so the imagination in Masa Merkava plays the central role where, where it's being transformed into another kind of sense perception, but not sensing physical stimuli, but stimuli from other dimensions. I mean, just to say that this is an extraordinary insight from Rav Chaim Vital in Shari Kedusha, and it's right on target. Uh, it's, it's true. What do you mean right it's right on target? target? In what sense? It, it's it, it's true. It can be experienced, uh, even in small ways. We're not talking about real nevuah, but uh, very much like what Rav Chaim Vital speaks about in the beginning of um, Shari Yehudim. These kinds of experiences still happen to people today. Rabbi Sender, why is it then that the Mishnah says that people should not really be taught Masay Merkava except only a worthy student and in hints? Is the practice itself dangerous or 
is there some reason why it should be hidden from most people? Because in theory, if everyone were taught this, that would help everyone's Yiddishkeit, I would think. One would think, yeah. But but there's no question in the, uh, the Mishnah's wise in this. No, not a question. The thing about meditation in its more advanced forms, I mean, in, in its in basic meditation practice, quieting the mind, learning to relax, learning to, to open your, your heart as well. These are all very healthy practices and good for everyone and can enhance our lives in general. As you get into the more rigorous meditation practices, which again, we, we should understand our Torah tradition has the full range of meditation practices and, and unique ones as well. There's no reason for anybody to, to need to actually go outside of our tradition. It's all in it. But these practices that you get the, the, the more sophisticated, the more rigorous le- uh, levels, are pushing the boundaries of sanity. They're pushing the boundaries of consciousness, which is boundaries of sanity. And so, you know, they, they mentioned the Gemara Chagiga, very famously, you know, the Arba Nichnas of the Pardes, the, uh, the four rabbis that entered the, the Pardes, which was understood as a contemplative experience, this experience that we we're talking about of Masim Merkava. It went very badly for three out of the four. Ben Azai died. I mean, he had such a profound experience that he chose basically not to come back to this world. Those who interpret it in a positive way. Ben Zoma went insane. Elisha Ben Abuya Acher apostatized. Uh, only Rabbi Akiva, you know, entered in peace, left in peace. Yes. In other words, in its more advanced and rigorous practices of meditation, particularly the, the one we mentioned, of transforming the imagination, one can go very wrong. Serious misinterpretations of reality can occur. That's where the earlier stages of meditation practice and learning to distinguish real from unreal uh, is very important. Uh, that's really what Rabbi Akiva is warning the other Rabbanim. He says, Al-Tamar Mayim Mayim, don't say Mayim Mayim. You're having experiences in your imagination. Don't mistake them as, as real. If an angel appears to uh, someone practicing Ma'asem Merkava, well, that angel might, you know, like in Yechezkel, might seem to present itself with wings and in a, some kind of a humanoid form. An angel does not have wings, as the Bible tells us. An angel does not have a humanoid form. An angel is pure mind. But when an angel wants to make itself known to a human being and uses the medium of human imagination to make, you know, within our consciousness to make itself known, it may take on forms. Yeah, you can go very wrong with that. It is pushing the boundaries of consciousness. So it's good a warning. In that same Mishnah, there's also a discipline called Maaseh Breshit, the works of creation, which seems to be not as dangerous as Maaseh Merkava because it doesn't have the same warning about only teaching a student with hints so that he understands on his own. On the other hand, it does say only teach it to one student. You can't teach it to a group. Is that also a meditative discipline or is that something else? It's a nice question. Probably most would interpret that as learning about cosmogony, cosmology, and you know, it's the creation and structure of, of the world, which frankly, in some Torah circles today remains controversial. What can I tell you? I mean, uh, you know, quantum physics and uh, astrophysics uh, you know, are not welcomed in, in some sectors of the, the Torah community. I think that the more you, you understand Torah, Kabbalah, and physics, you know how beautifully they work together. That's my own thing. But so really, you don't think though it's a meditative practice like Masay Merkava? You think this is no. more of an intellectual practice? Yeah, I would. I would. Yeah, I think it's more intellectual, um, investigative. You know what the n- nature of reality is, but it's not the experience 
you know, in and basically the experience on the way towards having a direct experience of the reality of Hashem, which is really what you know what Kabbalah is about at its at its core. So, do you see Kabbalah as a genuine extension of the original Masay Merkava tradition? And I ask this, obviously. I'm not an historian. Some people say, oh, Kabbalah is something which isn't a real tradition going all the way back. You're saying that you think that there is a real tradition that goes from the Gemara through to the Arizal. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I definitely think so. Uh, it, it, you, you can get into academic discussions about how to define Kabbalah, but in terms of these are, you know, our Torah called the mystical traditions, where mysticism means the working towards direct experience of divine reality, then there's a continuity here. There's a continuum. I think that's that's certainly so. And the Arizal, Rav Chaim Vital, were very explicit about this. Um, they, they saw a definite continuity between uh, Masa Merkava and the work that they were doing in, uh, in Kabbalah. Uh, they felt that they were shifting the focus from the angelic realm of the realm of the uh, the kisei the uh, the kisei kavod from the glory to the svirot, but they saw a definite continuity. How about perhaps a more modern form of Kabbalah or an extension of Kabbalah called Hasidut, which seems to be where a lot of meditation is focused nowadays? In fact, in my last episode, I spoke to Rabbi Shlomo Zokir about neo Hasidut. But before we get to neo Hasidut, there's Hasidut itself, founded by the Baal Shem Tov a few hundred years yeah. ago. That is known as a center of meditation as well. Can you talk a little bit about meditation in Hasidut? Yeah, I mean, the Baal Shem Tov himself, and you look at the descriptions of his experiences, he's certainly engaged in meditative contemplative practices. There's, there's no question about it. I mean, the, the one really authentic text we have of his is letter of Rosh Hashanah about his uh, Aliyah, the, the Shemayim. Uh, he used the method of the Ole Heichalot, the Merkava practices, and as added with the practice of the Arizal, it's very explicit. He certainly used contemplative methods, the meditative methods. Some of the, uh, the Hasidim are explicit about, Vorker Hasidim are explicit about the practice of Hashkata. Uh, we mentioned the Piazetz and Rebbe. In grad school, my professor, my Rebbe, was uh, Rav Yitzchak Tversky Zetzal. And Rav Tversky was also the Tona Rebbe Zetzal. And, uh, you know, I, so I asked him at one point, we driving together, I asked him, so your question, <laughs> what's the place of meditation in Hasidut? And he said, and if you knew him at all, he, he spoke very concisely. <laughs> and he said, every Hasidic group has its own meditation practice. The Rebbe and you know his top Hasidim have a meditation practice. They're different ones. What grants the, the true Admorim their abilities is a contemplative awareness and a contemplative practice. So then I asked him the natural next question. So for the Talna tradition and, and Chernobyl, what's the what's the practice? And he said quite appropriately, Ta'anit Dibur. To go for a period of time, uh, it could be a day, uh, it could be a week, could be a month. I tried it for a month once, it's extraordinary. Not talking for a month, you know, but or you take it for a day even, not talking for a day. Uh, and if, if you knew Rav Tversky Zetzal, he, he was someone very, very careful with words, uh, someone who practiced Tani Dibur. Uh, and it is a contemplative practice. Your mind quiets down. Every word becomes so precious. That's the, one of the, you know, the, the gifts of quieting, of Hashkata, is you really become you know, very, very sharply aware of everything that's happening in you and around you. 
and very attentive to what's happening. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful practice. I want to ask you, when you said that each Hasidic Rebbe, quoting Rav Tversky's Atzal, each Hasidic group and its Admor has its own specific meditative practice. So what's the place of innovation when it comes to meditation? We're talking on the one hand about the continuity of tradition from Asay Merkava to more modern forms today. And you're also talking about every group having its own specific tradition or its own specific methodology. So is there room for innovation or lamase in practice? Is everybody really doing the same thing? It's an interesting question. I mean, we do have these traditions of meditation. We have quieting methods, hashkata. We have these imaginative methods that we mentioned. Uh, there is sort of verbal vocal meditation practices. Rabbi Mabalafia was um, renowned for that. A very, 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 very rigorous. Uh, and then we have the, the practice of Yehudim, which is uh, uh, favored by the Arizal and his, uh, his group, which was unifications where, where we are working with and with great Tahara, the Kedusha, the divine names to connect our consciousness with, consciousness with the reality of Hashem. So we have these, these methods and they're traditional and, and there's, a, there's a virtue to tradition. It's many very, very spiritually aware, very bright, very deep people uh, who have tested these practices and filtered out that which isn't, you know, isn't relevant. And, and you know, it's, these are well-tested practices. So we tend to, to look for the, the traditional practices. And there's, there's something to that. And as you get into meditation, you, it always has to be personalized. It's your own mind you're working with. It's your own consciousness. And you find your way. I mean, and we, we get these really valuable hints from these, you know, great spiritual, you know, leaders and pioneers that have come before us. Uh, and then you kind of have your own experience and say, oh, now, now I know what Rabbi Akiva was talking about. Now I know what, you know, if, uh, Yitzhak Avaka was talking about. Uh, and you find your way. So it's not so much, it's certainly not innovation for the sake of innovation. There's new discovery, which, you know, it's new to, new to me, you know, you know, to us. We are talking about whatever consciousness is, and it's still a great mystery. It's the, it's the final frontier. <laughs> Whatever we don't know what consciousness is, but whatever it is, we all share it and have shared it with, you know, with human beings for millennia upon millennia. So, so there's going to be some continuity and value to tradition in this. And yet there has to be some degree of testing and improvising a bit, uh, your own way and finding your own way in this. And there are areas where uh, nobody else can show you and you've got to kind of figure it out for yourself. And so if, if that's what creative is, then that's, you know, that's creative. But for this creativity for the sake of innovation, you know, probably not. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a more, it's a more um, natural development, I'd say it that way. Rabbi Sandra, I want to go back to something you said 20 or 30 minutes ago. You mentioned that there's no reason for anybody to leave the Jewish tradition. Every type of meditation that you need is within our tradition, as long as you know where to find it. Right. Is there a difference between Jewish meditation and the meditation of other practices? People normally think of Hindu or Buddhist meditation, Eastern religions, although obviously there's also in other religions that are not Eastern religions. They have their own meditative traditions. Is it that our traditions are, quote unquote, fundamentally the same? It's the same practices, but obviously we're doing it with our specific religious understanding and our religious consciousness to reach Hashem as we understand Hashem? Or is it that we have our own unique methodology that's fundamentally different from other religious practices? Well, it's, I think it's a, a bit of both. There are important differences in terms of aims of meditation. Um, so you mentioned Buddhism. Again, I, I don't mean to cast aspersions on any other tradition. That's not, that's not our goal here. 
I'll just say that uh, it is known that Buddhism is a is not a theistic tradition. It's not, and and its meditation practices are not uh, aimed towards uh, the, the re realizing the reality and the you know, actualizing relationship with God. Their meditation practices are about orienting consciousness within itself to fully actualize this mystery of consciousness. Okay, that's not us. We understand that level, and th there are there are some points of commonality in the sense of you know quieting is quieting, and Buddhism begins with quieting, and we have our methods of hashkata as well. You know, so there's some similarities there, but the, the Buddhist notion of enlightenment stops at consciousness orienting in itself and fully realizing itself. Um, we have a location for that experience too uh, in Torah, but we push on beyond that uh, because our aim is direct experience to the extent that human being can have it, direct experience of the reality of Hashem. Uh, and that takes us beyond just orienting consciousness within itself to relating to actual God, not an idea of God, but God, God's self. And that's extraordinary. This takes us, you know, those who are really worthy of it, to, to nevoah. I mean, to actually converse with God. How extraordinary is that? Uh, and that's where meditation leads us. I mean, Rav Yitzchak of Akko in Meirat uh, Enayim is explicit about that, but you know, the Arizal also it's about uh, towards cultivating for those who are worthy of it re-establishing the, the possibility of, of Nebuah. The Rambam's talking about that too in uh, more Nebuchim. So you mentioned before about the impressions, this feeling that, or this experience, better put, of something from beyond, some sort of communication, whatever it might be exactly. So how is that different from Nebuah? Meaning, is the difference between Nebuah and those impressions which are available, is it a matter of degree, or is it a fundamentally different quality, something that's absolutely a different experience that we can't compare the two at all? Well, here I... I, I With the caveat most, that we don't know exactly what Nivua is because none of us experience it. I, I say the most extraordinary and, and the fullest description we have of this, which I, and it is, it is extraordinary, is the, the Rambam, the second Shah of uh, Mernivuchim, uh, where he's talking about the psychology of Nivua. So he makes it clear that you know the nevoah of Moshe Rabbeinu was entirely different than anything that we can imagine. Uh, the nevoah of other Nevi'im was on a kind of scale or continuum of clarity and intensity and what levels of angelic uh, beings uh, uh, you know uh, a person was able to to connect with and would communicate with them. Uh, but to actually have the kind of experience that Moshe Rabbeinu had, no, nobody else has. That that it is different in degree and different in quality. Uh, and you know, that's the Rama. He you know, certainly knows what he's saying. What I was talking about earlier were the kind of experiences that Rav Chaim Vital speaks about, of connecting with other neshamot that are not in this world, tzaddikim, uh, of magidim, of even malachim. Very few of us are zochit to this, but yeah, that the, and that remains a possibility. It's not. It's not full nevuah. The, the magid experience that Rav Chaim Vital speaks about is not nevuah. There are rabbinim that have these experiences today. I'll just say it. And no, not not one of them would claim that they're having experience of, of nevuah. They're having a magid experience. It's on a, a different level. I'll just say it that way. In terms of the goals of Jewish meditation, or aims of Jewish meditation, uh, is, since we're our aim is really to connect with the reality of Hashem. Uh, it's very different from 
what you find certainly within Buddhism and but also within Hinduism. I mean, the Hinduism is a, you know, a uh, iconic religion and it, it relates to the divine in an entirely different way. This is not our dara. Uh, and that shows itself in the meditation practices too. Um, so the fact that our goal is connection to Hashem, all of our meditation practices work towards that. Uh, those that are not connecting to Hashem, they're, they don't have, they're not, they're not doing the exercises and the practices that, uh, that are leading towards a, a connection to God or, or a connection to real God as opposed to, you know, ideas. So in terms of the aims, there's a very important differences. And then there are differences in practice. I mean, yes, you can find quieting meditations, uh, in other traditions. Yes, you can find vocalization meditations in other traditions, but our approaches to quieting, which are, to open to Hashem, the, our use of uh, vocalization meditations in Shem Hashem, you know, with Tahara Bikdusha and purity and holiness. These are different methods. So there are unique methods and unique aims. Uh, you can, you know, on a phenomenological level, you can so find some similarities, but the, actually, I think the differences are more are more significant. And we can certainly find, you know, those aspects that in meditation, in Torah meditation, Jewish meditation, that um, facilitate our, you know, our own derech in, in Ruchaniut, you know, in spirituality. Okay, as we come close to the end of our talk today, Rabbi Sender, I get to the big question. How can we learn how to do it? How do we learn how to integrate these practices into our own davening, into our own preparation for davening, into our own attempts at Tveikut, and into our lives in general? Yeah, so there has been, I think, a renewed interest in meditation. I mean, one of the questions is, if we have all these traditions, why aren't we more familiar with them? The fact that we're kept very esoteric uh, to a, you know, a very s small group of very top students uh, in Rabbanim, um, there was a reason for that, but it also worked against the, at least the, 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 the more accessible aspects of meditation uh, spreading in ways that could be useful for everybody. You know, but there is more interest in meditation practice. I, I have to say, I, I, I do stand for a, a authentic Jewish approach, um, Jewish approaches rather than syncretistic approaches that bring Buddhist meditation or something within you know, Hindu into. Right. I was going to ask Jewish. about that to make sure that we're not simply combining and syncretizing different religions together. I think that does no justice to Torah and not even to the other religion as well. So, but it's uh, to, to, to uncritically mix them together, uh, even to try to critically mix them together uh, is, um, I think, uh, a, a wrong direction. We have our own traditions. We should learn them carefully. I mean, that's my wife and I are trying, you know, with our little Amuta Tala wrote to, to do this. There are some good teachers around, you know, those who are interested, right? we're in Israel, the, in the States also, there's some, some, some very good people. I think you'll be talking to one of the great, uh, you know, good, good teachers around in the States shortly. Some teachers here in the, in Israel as well, who, doing, you know, really working at authentic practice. And, um, you know, those who are interested um, you know, can find them. You have to work at it. I wish it were more, but this we're trying to do our part to reacquaint Jews with our own heritage in, in meditation. So I don't mean this to be a booster for Tal Orot, our own investigation, but there are some very good teachers in Eretz Yisrael. I can, if people want to connect with me, I'll, I'm pleased to, to, to recommend them. I, you know, we all support each other and we, we all try to, to, to strengthen each other in this, and some and some good teachers, a few of them in the in the states as well. As we stand here, leading up to Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Simchat Torah, getting ready for what perhaps in the calendar is the ultimate time of encounter with God, 
Can you give a quick, I mean, I'm asking you to do something quick, which isn't quick at all, but for our purposes, a quick idea, maybe a type of practice that people can implement in their own lives that will help them experience Hashem on these important days? We begin with trying to find some time to quiet down a bit. Um, it's probably not going to work to do this, you know, in the Beit Knesset itself. <laughs> it's, there's a lot going on. But it would be good, you know, if you can take some time uh, before going, you know, to the Beit Knesset, uh, before you know, each of the tefillot, uh, when you're at home or in some quiet space, to sit quietly, try to clear your mind. I mean, the goal here is to become aware of your own consciousness itself, without words, without thinking, without any discursive thought, you know, to sit and you know, be aware that you're, you know, of your breathing, of your, you know, the, your sense of sitting in the, you know, the chair that you're sitting or wherever you're sitting, uh, of everything that's going on around, around you and within you, okay? Try to be aware of that all at once, uh, just, which is just the natural state of consciousness, to stabilize your attention, and then, realize that this consciousness that we're experiencing is a gift. It's a gift from Hashem at every instant. You know, we've done nothing to bring ourselves here. We do nothing really, very little to keep ourselves here. What do we do? We, we breathe, we drink, we eat, you watch where you walk. That's all you have to do. And you can spend your whole life here. You know, and you're being, we're all being held here to be, to feel as you quiet self, yourself down and realize, how little you are doing to 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 be here that th you are a gift at every moment to yourself your life is a gift your body is a gift the people around you the gift the world is a gift your consciousness is a gift at every moment you're not doing it we're not doing it we're held we're in the flow of this when you really sense that your heart opens up in both tremendous ahava ahava Hashem, and also yira uh, in, in the true sense, a, a sense of you know, reverence for the, the, the extraordinary gift and responsibility that we have received from Hashem. Uh, so it's a question of, before Tfilah of really quieting down and sensing the whole context of your existence. It's all a gift. We're doing really nothing to be here. We are held. And when you feel yourself held from moment to moment to moment by Hashem, you know, you're held that sense of gratefulness, of love, and even a sense of, of yira, because we have a responsibility here, it begins to grow on you. Uh, I, I recommend it. It's just, it's simply quieting down. It's very much like what the Piazetzna Rebbe uh, recommends in, in Der HaMelech. It's also very much in line with the Beit Yaakov of Ishbitz, um, who talks about this. I mean, becoming more and more aware of how little we do to be here, how effortless this is, uh, and you realize it's all being done for us. When we sense that, we are sensing the reality of, of Hashem. And so I highly recommend this before tefillah. It, it transforms your tefillah. Rabbi Meir Sender, I have to tell you, this was something which I was looking forward to and it did not disappoint because I don't know anything about Jewish meditation, but I know that it's something that I should integrate into my life. And you've definitely whetted my appetite and more. And I'm sure the same is true for my listeners. So I thank you very much for joining me today and wish you a ketiva v'chatima tova as well. Ketiva v'chatima tova to you, to your whole family. It, it's, it's a delight. It's an honor, really, to, to be with you on this. We have uh, maybe have many times together as well uh, to, to share to share in Ruchanit. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. 
Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest Orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop any time, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.